Hello, welcome to Science and Society about all things COVID, and I'm Anton Posniak. One of the things on all our minds is how do we get out of the COVID-19 pandemic? Will vaccines and social measures be the only thing that will do this? So what role do drugs have in COVID-19? And what about monoclonal antibodies, which are designed to mimic the body's natural immune response? Can they be used in treatment and prevention? How should we use them? Will they work in all stages of the disease? Will they work against the variants? And it's with great pleasure today, I have Professor Dan Karitsis from the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. He's a professor of infectious disease at Harvard Medical School and an expert in these drugs. Dan, first of all, tell us a little bit about how monoclonal antibodies work in general. Well, it's great to be with you, Anton. Uh, so monoclonal antibodies, by and large, are targeting proteins expressed on the surface of uh, viruses. Uh, and when they bind to these particles, then they can do a couple of different things. One, they block the virus from entering into a cell, so they, they prevent infection. And that's why we often refer to them as neutralizing antibodies. Uh, they could also, through complement mediation, actually result in lysis of the virus particles. They accelerate clearance of the virus uh, by the spleen and what we used to call the reticuloendothelial system. Uh, and they may uh, as well help target um, infected cells that might be expressing the same proteins uh, for destruction by antibody-mediated mechanisms like antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity, antibody-mediated cytoto uh, phagocytosis, and the like. So that there really are a boost to the uh, na a natural immune system. They mimic it and, and help uh, us clear the, this viral illness, COVID-19. What about other infectious diseases? Have we got monoclonal antibodies for those? Well, there, there aren't any that are approved that I'm aware of. Uh, you know, monoclonal antibodies in some ways uh, re reflect the pinnacle of passive immunotherapy, uh, which has a, a, a more than century long history. It really began uh, with Pasteur, uh, and his use of uh, uh, antibodies, uh, as well, and actually uh, Emil von Behring's uh, work uh, using antiserum uh, for the treatment of diphtheria uh, back in the 1890s. And then uh, Rufus Cole used type-specific immunotherapies to treat pneumococcal infection. Eventually, we got better at isolating antibodies and, and came on either hyperimmune globulin uh, serum or uh, purified immunoglobulins. But now with advances in technology, we can actually clone out the individual antibodies, uh, picking the ones that are have the highest titer and the greatest specificity or the greatest potency uh, and use those uh, and then be able to really mass produce them so we don't have to keep going back to the same donors to, to harvest their antibodies. Um, but um, there are broadly neutralizing antibodies being studied for prevention and treatment of HIV. Uh, there are monoclonal antibodies being studied for prevention of CMV in uh, transplant patients, especially after stem cell transplantation, but none of these yet have advanced to the point where they've received uh, uh, regulatory approval. So again, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic has spurned on science and uh, got us quite a far away. With, with uh, I know we have with vaccines, but this uh, with monoclonals, it seems to be the same thing. So tell me a little bit about how they work in COVID-19. So in COVID-19, there are uh, now at least five monoclonal antibodies that in the United States have received 
uh, emergency use authorization. These antibodies all target the spike protein, uh, the same protein that the vaccines are targeting, actually. And that's because the spike protein is necessary for the virus to attach to cells, to, to bind to the ACE2 receptor. And by binding the spike protein, uh, these uh, antibodies essentially neutralize the virus. They prevent it from entering the cell. So the, the actual target on the spike, are they all the same target or do they, do they overlap? I mean, how much of the spike are they actually um, binding to? Well, the, each of these antibodies recognizes a specific part of the spike protein. Uh, they each have their own unique epitopes uh, that they would bind to. Uh, and so um, different antibodies may be more effective against certain viruses than others. And using combinations of antibodies can help get around the problem of uh, virus escape from uh, neutralization, very much like we use combinations of drugs uh, to treat infections like tuberculosis or HIV, uh, combination monoclonal antibody therapy uh, may have some important advantages over single antibody therapy. But if you combine them, and the, the, the sites are very distinct, they don't overlap, because I'm just thinking if you combine them and some of the sites overlap, they could antagonize each other. Well, that's an interesting question. I don't think we have a clear understanding of whether particular combinations of antibodies actually antagonize because, uh, first of all, a virus has many spike proteins on its surface, so the antibodies don't all have to bind to the very same spike protein. Uh, also, um, the, they could bind to just different virus particles uh, altogether. Um, uh, in theory, uh, if there were uh, epitopes that were very close together, binding of one antibody could preclude binding of a second antibody. Uh, uh, and you could determine that in the laboratory if you saw um, less than uh, additive effects of the two together. Um, but it's uh, more of a theoretical concern than a practical clinical concern. So uh, you're saying one of the advantages of having a combination would might be that it would then cover various variants. And, you know, we've been thrown in a, a little bit sideways with the renaming of variants recently. So I think, I know you must get me on the right track here. Alpha is for the UK variant. Uh, uh, beta is for South Africa. Gamma is for Japan and Brazil. Delta is for what we used to call the Indian. Have we got to Omega yet? No, and then my Greek yet. alphabet starts to get very shaky, I must admit. Hopefully we're not going to get to Omega. <laughs> <laughs> okay. but And there will be variants that are alpha stroke beta or beta stroke gamma, yeah? Is That's, that the way it's going to work? Certainly, certainly. <laughs> okay. So if you've got a combination, then you, you could cover the basis for various variants that might be circulating. Is that is that the theory of, of the combinations? Or do you think you need combinations even when you have one variant that's dominant? Well, you may not always need combinations. So, uh, for example, if we look at the, the currently authorized uh, uh, antibodies, so the, the, the first uh, uh, monoclonal to be authorized was bamlanivimab. Uh, and then that one, together with... Uh, Edizivimab uh, was studied in people uh, who had symptomatic COVID but were not hospitalized. Uh, and the combination was shown to be very effective in preventing disease progression. So people uh, didn't need to come to the hospital for uh, care. Uh, and um, uh, it turns out that many of the variants 
especially those that have a mutation at a particular position in the spike protein, this E484K mutation, are resistant to bamlanivimab. Uh, and so the combination became important to use. And in fact, subsequently, at the request of the uh, company, the FDA withdrew its authorization for bamlanivimab alone. Uh, only the combination is now uh, authorized. And even in that combination, there are a number of variants, uh, uh, including some of the uh, beta variants, uh, that are uh, less susceptible to the combination. By contrast, uh, another combination, casarivimab and indevimab, uh, are highly active against uh, all of the variants to date. And the newest MAB that, to receive an authorization, about which there's been relatively little uh, presented uh, publicly, but at least looking at the documentation from the uh, US uh, FDA, um, uh, show that uh, this new antibody, Citrovimab, uh, 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 is uh, highly active by itself against all of the variants. And so it may not always be necessary to um, have a combination if the antibody is targeting parts of the virus that are less likely to vary or parts of the spike protein that are less likely to vary uh, and still show uh, good effectiveness. So it appears that if you have a monoclonal that um, can target a, a, a part of the spike, very, um, spike protein that doesn't vary very much at all or doesn't vary, you could be onto a real winner. And, and, and maybe that's, um, that's something we'll have to keep our eye on. But are people mapping spike protein um, conformational changes? That's what they do with each of the variants. Uh, um, I, I, it seems to me that... The problem with these drugs are is that if a new variant arises or a dominant variant arises, then as you say, some of them may not be useful at all on their own, uh, and a whole load of effort into producing, manufacturing, getting them out there could be lost uh, as the virus mutates. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I, I mean, this is a high stakes game. Uh, uh, the, the virus continues to evolve. Uh, the the uh, monoclonals. Uh, put strong selective pressure uh, on the virus. And if there are uh, solutions in terms of uh, escape mutants, the virus is likely uh, to find them. Uh, again, not too different from what we've seen with HIV and antiretroviral therapy or tuberculosis and antimycobacterial therapy. That's why we use combinations. Uh, and um, uh, we're still learning a great deal about the paths for escape that the virus may take. Uh, certainly, uh, people have been doing just as you uh, uh, suggested. They've been mapping the uh, mutations that are, are found in people who uh, have been treated with these uh, antibodies to see if, there are, if they represent escape mutants. They've certainly mapped the mutations that are, or the variants, that polymorphisms that are present in these uh, uh, emerging uh, uh, strains and variants uh, from across the, the world and uh, doing making three-dimensional structures and uh, seeing how these might uh, interfere with binding of the monoclonal antibodies. All work that has been done for years with HIV for influenza uh, and now applied very, very rapidly to uh, SARS-CoV-2. So Dan, where do you see the role in, in two parts for this? Now, the first part is treatment and the second part prevention. What's the role of monoclonals in the treatment of COVID-19? 
So the, to date, the data are most compelling for people who have symptomatic COVID infection, but are not sick enough to require hospitalization. Uh, and that's been a bit of a challenge because um, many people who fall into that category may not come to uh, the hospital for any kind of, or to their uh, medical provider for any kind of uh, care. Uh, and so we've really had to go out actively and seek these individuals to uh, offer them the opportunity to receive monoclonal antibodies as preventive therapy. And, and the the groups that are being targeted are those at highest risk for progressive disease. So people uh, over age 65, uh, uh, people who have um, uh, several comorbidities, including obesity, pre-existing uh, heart disease, lung disease, uh, and the like, and immunocompromised patients, particularly people who can't make their own antibodies. The puzzling thing is that these antibodies have not shown any benefit in hospitalized patients, uh, people who are already sick enough to be in the hospital on supplemental oxygen or, or even uh, more severely ill. Uh, and that may be because once people begin to make their own antibodies, uh, uh, additional antibody doesn't add any uh, further benefit. The second place, uh, of course, maybe that's where you're heading is about prevention. Yeah, I, I, just before we get there though, I, I'm quite intrigued about um, uh, giving them in treatment. If so I understand about the people who might progress rapidly, right? So that'd be a great uh, group of patients to give it to so they don't get into hospital at all. But what about preventing transmission, you see? I, and I'm wondering whether if you can find people early uh, that you could give these to prevent transmission. Is there any evidence that these do that? There, there aren't data on that point yet. There, There is faster reduction in the amount of virus that can be recovered from the you know, the, the nose or the mouth. Um, uh, but it's not clear that the difference is uh, dramatic enough to really make it uh, to alter the risks of transmission. What we do know is that in residential settings, you can uh, use these antibodies to protect people. Uh, and in that setting, the people who nevertheless became infected did have much lower titers of uh, a virus and therefore might be supposed to be less infectious, but demonstrating that there's actually less transmission is a, a tall order. So, okay, so let's, you hinted at it there. Let's talk about prevention. I mean, uh, healthcare workers who ha can't be vaccinated or haven't been vaccinated, others at high risk, uh, et cetera, uh, people who don't want vaccination and say that, but they do perhaps would take some therapy uh, can you use it? And how long will these monoclonals last for? Oh, that's a great question. So there, we do know that the, these monoclonals have a protective effect. Uh, in fact, just yesterday, there was a paper uh, published in the uh, JAMA uh, by Mike Cohen and colleagues where they uh, went around the country uh, to uh, residential uh, care facilities, nursing homes and assisted living facilities, where there was an outbreak. Uh, and they uh, enrolled participants into a randomized trial where people either received bamlanivimab alone or placebo. Uh, and they also enrolled the staff at these centers. And they found that there was a dramatic reduction uh, in the risk of uh, you know, developing symptomatic COVID-19 uh, if you had received the antibody. The effect was more uh, pronounced uh, among the residents than among the staff. But even among the staff, there was a a significant effect. And nobody who got the antibody uh, ended up dying of, uh, of COVID, even if they subsequently became ill. And those who did get uh, ill um, uh, shed, uh, I'm sorry, those who did become infected shed uh, less virus. There are similar data for 
the combination of uh, casirivimab and indevimab uh, in a slightly different setting. Um, it hasn't yet been looked at in healthcare workers, uh, uh, but presumably results would be uh, similar. Uh, as far as duration, uh, these antibodies have a half-life of several weeks, but they can be engineered uh, in much the same way as many of the other uh, monoclonal antibodies used in other therapeutic areas, um, uh, such as the anti-inflammatory drugs, to have very long half-lives. Uh, and if those uh, monoclonals were designed, uh, then one could imagine a single infusion or injection uh, might last for several months. So it seems to me one of the uses could be if you're, you've got an elderly relative who, you know, in, in a care home or, or, or uh, who's isolating, self-isolating, you're a relatively young person who hasn't had any vaccination yet and can't get back, you know, you're in the pecking order to get your vaccination. It might be several months before you get it, that if you have a shot of this uh, and have a lateral flow or another test to make sure you've not got active COVID, then going in there, um, uh, you may not then, you know, develop COVID if you're a healthcare worker going in there or relative and bring you home to other relatives, et cetera. Uh, it, it, how is it going to be, how do you see it going to be used this in prevention? I can see, especially now that we have vaccines, I could see that these uh, monoclonals uh, would be used in people who either cannot get vaccinated or who have not responded to the vaccine. Uh, and they may get used as an adjunct to vaccines, especially in residential care facilities, um, uh, if there is an outbreak despite vaccination, uh, very much like we use ozoltamivir uh, to prevent uh, outbreaks of uh, influenza uh, in similar settings, even though everybody has uh, get, uh, gets influenza vaccine in those uh, settings. But will these MABs interfere with vaccine efficacy? So I imagine I've had the MAB, and then somebody says, oh, you're, you're on the list now to have your vaccination. Are they going to interfere with each other? We don't really know the answer to that. There's no theoretical reason that they should. We have other examples, for example, with hepatitis B and rabies. Uh, we give uh, hyperimmune globulin after an exposure uh, and give the vaccine simultaneously, and there's no uh, uh, adverse effect on uh, the take of the vaccine. Um, it, been recommended in the U.S. that if you receive the uh, one of these monoclonals, that you uh, wait 90 days before uh, getting vaccinated. That had much more to do with the the rollout of the vaccine and the fact that you didn't need the vaccine immediately, so you may as well wait. Uh, presumably, this is being studied in more detail now uh, to actually have uh, evidence about uh, the effectiveness of the vaccine after uh, receipt of the monoclonal. Well, one other thing before we start to wrap up is about side effects. What about the side effects of these things? I mean, um, we know we know a lot about side effects of vaccination and other drugs, but uh, as you say, we, we first time we're going to use these in infectious disease um, in a widespread way. What about what should people expect? Well, these antibodies are by and large very well tolerated. Obviously, there are, can be. Uh, uh, reactions at the site of injection if they're given um, as an intramuscular injection or uh, from the intravenous infusion. They are proteins, so there's a, a small chance that uh, people might have a hypersensitivity reaction or a serum sickness-like reaction, uh, but those have been very, very rare. Uh, and to date, we've not seen any off-targeted effects. It doesn't look like these antibodies uh, trigger any uh, other kind of, uh, of uh, reaction in the body. 
So no sort of hyperimmune response or, or uh, you know, wi uh, widespread systemic problems with them? No, not to date. No, that's, that's very, very reassuring. Well, uh, Professor Dan Karitsis from uh, Harvard Medical School and Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, the USA. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, to talk to you today. And this has been Science and Society, COVID-19. And it's goodbye until our next podcast from me, Anton Posniak. Always a pleasure, Anton. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Make sure to check out the notes for any references during the podcast. You can learn more about virology education and our other programs at www.academicmedicaleducation.com. Thanks for joining us and see you next time.